Welcome to Porter Wright's Antitrust Law Source. Hi, this is uh, Jay Levine from Porter Wright, and this is our next installment in our Antitrust 101 series. I have with me Sarah Smith Oberst from Gut Check Analytics, who's graciously offered to help me here. I'm serving as a proxy for a client as I, you know, teach or talk about um, Section Two of the Sherman Act, unilateral conduct. Good day. Hello, Jay. Um, so. We talk about unilateral conduct, and as its name implies, that's any conduct a firm does unilaterally, meaning by itself. As we discussed in former podcasts events, that discussed bilateral conduct or restraints of trade where it takes two to tango, where it's the conduct between two companies that can get them into trouble. This, we're going to talk about, is only conduct the company itself engaged in, which can land itself in some antitrust hot water. Okay. So if you're well-informed, you can theoretically stay out of some of the hot water. And that's what we're hoping to try and accomplish. Okay. Um, uh, can't always do it, but obviously the more informed you are, the better you can protect yourself. So Section 2 of the Sherman Act makes it illegal to monopolize, attempt to monopolize, or conspire to monopolize. The conspiracy actually does require two players, and that's because a lot of it dovetails well with the Section 1 of the Sherman Act that we've discussed in previous podcasts. I'm not really going to discuss it very much now. What we're really going to talk about is monopolization or attempt to monopolize, and the basic conduct for each of those offenses are the same. And, and that's what? The basic difference between monopolization and attempt to monopolization is how big you are. In other words, if you're already a monopolist, you will be engaged in monopolization. Right. If you are not quite yet at the monopoly stage, but you're getting towards it, you can be accused of attempting to monopolize. Now, what kind of conduct? Yeah. Okay. So let me tell you what the elements of the violation are, and then I will go into some of the types of conduct that can land you in hot water. Okay. Okay. First, you have to have what we call monopoly power in a relevant market. Now, monopoly power does not mean you have 100% of the market. By no means. Yes, it's not the lay term monopoly. Monopoly power simply means that you have enough power in the industry that you can raise prices or exclude competitors. You have you have some real muscle. Now, if you want to put it to numbers, uh, a lot of courts require for actual monopolization for you to have around. 70% 70% or so, maybe 80% of the market. You don't need 100%. Because if you think about it, if you have 80% of the market, you pretty much can dictate what you want to do. You don't need the 100%. It might as well be 100%. In many cases, that is exactly <laughs> true. But of what market? Now, it's of a quote-unquote relevant market. You're going to hear me talk about relevant market a lot. Relevant market has two components to it. It has a product component and a geographic component. And, you know, let's talk about your your neighborhood barber for a moment, okay? So the product component is he is selling haircutting services. His geographic component, well, is probably limited to the neighborhood, you know, if you're in a real urban environment and there's a lot of barbers maybe around, maybe it's a, just a few square blocks. That's his rel- that's his geographic market. And the question is within that market, you know, does he have the power to raise prices or to exclude competitors? Now, if you're the only barber in town or if you're one of two barbers in town, maybe you do. 
and maybe that market tends to expand. If there are 20 barbers in town, maybe it's a lot smaller. If you think about retail locations, they're almost always fairly limited geographically because you have to go to the store. If you think about your um, forgetting the internet for a moment, which has introduced an entirely new distribution channel. The one thing there's not an app for is haircuts. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But even if you think about, um, you know, you want to go buy bricks, okay. okay, and assuming you're not buying bricks uh, online, okay, so that you got your brick store. Okay, so again, it's geographic. The geography may be the city, that may be the geographic market, but it's not going to be the state. It's not going to be the country. Who determines well, it's how a, large that market is? So it's a, it's a factual. In essence, either the jury or the judge determines the relevant market. But the guidelines for determining the relevant market essentially are, for the product market, are there any good substitutes? You know, your gardener is not a substitute for your barber. You know, there aren't any good substitutes. For bricks, are there other types of materials you can build with? Certainly. There's tile. There's all these other types of things. Would bricks be their own relevant product market? Maybe not. Maybe for some applications, you can only use brick. And maybe for those applications, that would be the only relevant product market. Relevant market is an extremely fact-specific analysis and really is only determined once you get to trial or sometimes it can be determined by the judge on motions for summary judgment and the like. But in essence, that you've got to think in terms of relevant market. Who are your competitors? What other products could consumers use instead of your product? And where could they go to buy it for the geographic scope? Once that sort of in your mind is determined, then the question is, what kind of power do you have within that market? If you're a small player, if you have 20% of the market, or there's hundreds and hundreds of players and you each are pretty fragmented, you know, then you know you don't really have much market power. And we probably shouldn't, but antitrust lawyers use market power and monopoly power somewhat interchangeably. So if I do, I don't mean anything necessarily by it. But once you've determined you have market power or monopoly power in a cogent, relevant market, then that's fine. Because you know, if you built the best mousetrap in the world and you have 100% of the market, that's not illegal. You got to do something bad. You have to have engaged in some anti-competitive conduct to either maintain or obtain that market power. So what? what's bad? Ah, that's the $64,000 question. So what is bad? Um, there's all types of things that are that can be bad. The one thing I do want to, at the outset, note that when we were talking about Section 1 of the Sherman Act, we talked about two different types of analyses. There's things that are, there's no way you can justify. Price fixing. There's no way you can justify it. If you've engaged in price fixing, boom, you're done. No gray area. No gray area. Bid rigging, market allocation, all that stuff is just per se illegal. Everything else is under this kind of murky rule of reason standard where you kind of throw the anti-competitive effects of the conduct with the pro-competitive effects of the conduct into kind of a stew, and then you kind of see, okay, what are the net effects? What's, you know, is there a net bad effect, net benefit, or is it, you know, essentially competitively neutral? That doesn't really exist in unilateral conduct analysis. Over here, it's almost, it's kind of a back and forth. We, we first see, okay... Uh, have you engaged in something that's 
kind of bad? And is there a legitimate business justification for what you've done? That's kind of the analysis. There's nothing that is so bad that there's no gray area. In unilateral conduct analysis, everything's in the gray area, which may be bad for the client, but it's good for the lawyers. But what you should know is obviously the higher and higher you go up the power scale, the more cautious you should be. Because dominant firms are held to a little bit higher of a standard. And there's case law that suggests that not, you know, the same conduct engaged by somebody with 80% market share may be viewed quite disfavorably, whereas that same conduct engaged by somebody who has 40% of the market share would be fine. So it's important to know where you stand in the market. Absolutely. Before you start throwing things against the wall to see if they stick. Exactly. Okay. Absolutely. And you got to be honest with yourself. I have never met a client yet who says he's dominant. You really we really the the salespeople, the marketing people, uh, the business executives, we got to be honest with ourselves. I'm a, I have one client right now who I obviously won't mention, but is rather dominant in its area. And to the client's credit, they they acknowledge they are dominant and they come to me with a lot of questions because they are worried that no matter what they think is relatively competitively benign conduct may land them in hot water merely because they have somewhat 80-90% of the market. They're really on the radar. They can be on the radar, and, and depending on how you define the market, they're very much on the radar and very high on the radar, and they're in a market that's kind of chatty. <laughs> so people talk to each other a lot um, via the internet, via, you know, and so you got to just know who your customers are. And you also have to know, you know, are, are you selling direct to consumers? Are you selling to sophisticated businesses? You know, you sort of have to know who you, who, who's around and what the risk tolerance of those people are as well. So once, you, once, once you've kind of determined, okay, I know I'm, I'm getting there. I'm either big or, I'm, you know, I'm threatening to be big. And uh, what's the type of conduct I have to worry about, which is, you know, what you've asked me. So there's several different types of conduct we need to think about. The first, let me t- talk about is predatory pricing. I'll give you a, I'll give you a few examples. Predatory pricing, let me, we'll also talk about bundled and loyalty discounts. We'll talk about raising your rival's costs, which sounds like a pretty you know, kind of sexy topic. And then, you know, just refusal to deal with suppliers or customers or, or even competitors. That also can land you sometimes in in hot water. And that's, you know, a relatively controversial um Yeah, the last topic. one sounds interesting. Yeah, I know. You know, people's like, this is America. Why can't I deal with whomever I like? And generally you can, except in a couple of circumstances, which we will get to. Okay. So let's start with predatory pricing. It's a little bit in some respects it's the easiest topic. Predatory pricing means you are selling below cost. What's your question? Like, why would anybody sell below cost? You're right. losing money. Well, think about it like this. You're, you got 80% of the market. Jay comes into the market. He has a new product, and he's, uh, he's undercutting you. And he's starting to chip away at your market share. And you don't like that. So what are you going to do? Well, you know Jay is sort of just making it, okay? He has a low margin. You know, he's doing it out of his you know, backyard garage. So what are you going to do? You sell below cost, and you're practically giving the stuff away. Well, what's that going to do to Jay's? Drive him out of business. Drive me out of business. And then I raise my prices again. Ah, see? Sarah, you're great. You know it. Right. That is absolutely uh, the fear in predatory pricing. 
Um, and the and the Supreme Court has said that that would be a Section 2 violation. Now, the problem in actually proving that is twofold. One, what is below cost? Now, as you can imagine, economists and accountants can have a field day with what cost you include when you're trying to determine whether it's below cost. Sure. Um, I won't get into that because that would probably take a semester worth of um, lectures by people much smarter than me. But um, there, the circuits around the country have come to basically two different standards, um, which are similar. One is marginal cost and one is average variable cost. If you are selling below your marginal cost or below your average variable cost, you know there's a potential issue. Now, if you don't have market power, then really there's no issue because you haven't satisfied the first element. But for the most part, you know, you tend not to see people engaged in predatory pricing unless they have a pretty substantial, you know, uh, share of the market, unless they're sort of subsidizing it from some other sector of the market that they engage in that, you know, is giving them um, the cash and they just are using it to break into the market. And if you're using it to break into a, a relevant market, you know, knock yourself out. That'll because be you're fine. not a leader in that market yet. Exactly. Exactly. Again, uh, if, if rapidly you're going to gain a monopoly power as a result of the predatory pricing, that may land you in some hot water, but I... Very few cases like that. Usually, predatory pricing are engaged by present monopolists who are trying to, you know, uh, exclude and knock out the uh, mavericks of the industry. The guys. Yeah. So that's one problem: is determining whether it's below cost. The other problem is, can you really recoup? Now, you have to think about relevant market concepts. Are okay. I, I'm fear, I'm fairly secure in where where I am, and I'm not worried about anything else. If there are low barriers to entry into the market, you can never really be all that secure. You may have 80% of the market, but if you let your guard down and you're not competitive and people can come in quite quickly and quite effectively, then your 80% is going to shoot down to 20% extremely quickly. So if if this is a market that's easy to enter, your ability to recoup all of those losses probably doesn't exist. And if it doesn't exist, then the Supreme Court says we have to really wonder whether you've engaged in predatory pricing or just, frankly, stupid conduct. And the antitrust laws do not make it illegal to be stupid. (laughs) Well, that's good to hear. That is. That is. (laughs) Or else many of us, I guess, would have (laughs) violated the antitrust laws. But the thing is this. Low prices are good for consumers. And so we don't want to discourage that. Right. We only want to discourage it if ultimately it's going to lead to much higher prices. But if it's not going to lead to much higher prices, then who are we to tell you? Exactly. Who are we to tell you how to market? Okay. So there has to be a reasonable prospect or a dangerous probability of recoupment. If we don't think there is, then it's not predatory pricing. So that's the first type of conduct that could be considered anti-competitive. Um, under Section 2 of the Sherman Act. Now, the second one that I was going to go into is bundled discounts. Now, that's a big issue these days. We see bundles everywhere. Exactly. So what is a bundled discount? And it's exactly as its name implies. It's basically, uh, you know, I'll sell you widget one for a dollar, and I'll sell you widget one and two for a buck fifty. Yeah. You know? Okay. So it could be a volume discount, but most, or it could even be a market share discount if, you know, if you, 
if you buy X percentage of your needs from me, then you'll get more of a discount. But more likely it is I sell a range of products. If you only buy one of my products, the price is X. But the more and more of my product line you buy, the bigger your discount will be. Sure. And that can be substantial. So what is the problem with bundled discounts? Well, think about it like this. Let's say you are in a market where you're competing with a whole bunch of people for product A. Okay. Now you also happen to sell product B, which product A consumers need too. Now, all of a sudden, you say, you know what? I'm going to join A and B together, and I'm going to give a, a, a discount. Now, all the other product A manufacturers can't compete against you because they don't sell product B. So you're, in essence, forcing us to get into a whole new line of business to compete with you. And that can be problematic. Now, again, intuitively, you think, well, that's just the market at work. I mean, that's just savvy marketing. As long as it's not below cost, what's the problem? And that's sort of the where we get to the crux of the issue. There are different articulations of this. I'm just going to give one for, for ease of explication. But bundled discounts become problems where the discount, if you attribute the discount to the competitive products, those competitive products end up becoming predatory pricing. Oh, so by offering this bundled discount, you've created a predatory pricing situation on particular services or products. You got it. Okay. Now, let me give you an example, and, and this comes out of the Ninth Circuit, um, Cascade Health Solutions v. Peace Health. What, what happened, essentially, is the, the defendant offered what we call primary, secondary, and tertiary care. All of you healthcare people out there, you'll understand what I'm saying. But essentially, primary care is, as its name suggests, your, your basic care. Secondary care is kind of like your OBGYN and, and those services. And the tertiary are kind of the thoracic surgeons and, and the like. And then there's quaternary care, which is the transplants and stuff like that. But So there was a hospital in the area that only offered primary and secondary care. And there was a hospital in the area that offered primary, secondary, and tertiary care. And it realized, you know, we're gonna, we, we can essentially knock this other company out of business if we give a discount. If we say, if you buy all of your care to the insurance companies, we buy all of your care from us, primary, secondary, and tertiary, because we know you have to come to us for tertiary because nobody else offers it. So if you'll also buy the others, we'll give you a discount. And that, so That doesn't sound so bad. It doesn't sound so bad. So what the Ninth Circuit basically said is if you look at that discount and you apply it to the competitive products. So let's let's say, you know, let's say the discounts were on the whole $25 million a year in, in healthcare services. And you took that $25 million discount and you applied it to the volume of just primary and secondary, which were the competitive services. Right. If that meant that the defendant was in the red on those services, that's predatory pricing. And that's when the bundle discount would become a problem. If they were still in the black mm-hmm. or at you know zero, but they weren't in the red, you're, you're good to go. So bundle discounts aren't a problem. You just got to make sure that you're not giving such a large volume of discount that it essentially makes the competitive product that you're, that you're offering against your rivals in the predatory zone. So you have to break even or better. Yes. On the original product or service offering that the, com- the competition can also offer, and then if not, 
you got a problem. Becoming predatory. Yes, exactly. Because that's an easy one. That's, that's an easy Now, applying it is not always so easy. And again, this is where you can get into some very tricky situations because, you know, we may have similar products or services, but not identical. How do you weigh them? How do you, how do you look true. at them? You know, it's one thing when you're talking about uh, widgets, or you're talking about tires, or you're talking about something sort of very basic. But when services you're talking about services, services become much Especially more difficult. Especially healthcare services and things like that where, yeah. you know, you could really be looking at a quality of care situation or a continuity of care offering. Absolutely. Uh, because you can go through all three stages of care with one system and not with the other. So they have maybe a, a better service there or could right. arguably uh, be better. Well, and, and you raise a point that sort of I, I made earlier is that Again, we look at the anti-competitive effect, but it's also judged against the legitimate business justification. So if there's a good reason to offer this bundled discount uh-huh. and, you know, because you want the kind of the continuity of care and you can prove, you know, then, um, then maybe notwithstanding that under certain, you know, methodologies this could be predatory pricing, maybe you have a saving argument. Maybe not. It depends. Again, antitrust is extremely fact-specific, so there's no bright-line rule about it. Sure. But And this attribution rule plays out in, in a number of different areas. Sometimes some courts have used the attribution against the entire volume, not just the competitive products. Sometimes they've only used it at the competitive products. Sometimes they haven't used the full discount. And there's a lot of dispute and disagreement and you know very vocal concerns about bundle discounts ever being illegal because, again, it's, isn't that what we want to promote? The, the purpose of the antitrust laws, if you go back to our, you know, the very first episode here, is to promote consumer welfare. So we want the lowest price product at the highest quality um, it, can, it can be offered. Right. Well, bundle discounts, there's lower cost. If it's lower cost, why and how can it be a problem? So um, not saying... It can't be. It can. The Ninth Circuit held um, in the Peace Health case that it was a problem. Um, DOJ has used it in 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 analyzing, uh, especially down in Texas. There was a um, there was a uh, an exclusive contract that they that essentially off you know worked a little bit like a bundle discount, and um, and they used this kind of Peace Health attribution rule. Some people says they didn't really. Keep to the peace out attribution rule. They used it a little bit differently, but be that as it may, some some form of the attribution rule was used, and they found it to be illegal, and they went after them, and you know signed a consent decree. So, um, so just, when in doubt, seek counsel. Absolutely. If well, that's you're approaching anything that's even close to questionable. Absolutely. If you're thinking of a new marketing and you want to do a bundle discount, um, you know, just just talk with your counsel for a few minutes. Sometimes it's just going to be clearly you're above, you're, you're in the black. It's not a problem. Um, but sometimes it can get a little bit trickier. And it's and especially if you're in a market where you have savvy customers and and you have litigious savvy competitors, savvy competitors, <laughs> litigious competitors, and litigious. Absolutely, <laughs> you do want to make sure that you are on safe ground, or at least that you have good arguments going forward. Right. So that wraps it up for bundle discount. I think that'll probably do it for. This episode, this has been Jay Levine at Porter Wright, along with Sarah Smith-Oberst. Very happy to bring this to you. Uh, please follow me on 
Uh, Twitter at J, J-A-Y-L Levine, L-E-V-I-N-E. That's J-L Levine at uh, Twitter and as well as on LinkedIn. Um, and please follow our uh, podcasts at theantitrustlawsource.com. Um, we look forward to hearing back from you. If you have any comments, suggestions, ideas for future podcasts, please drop me a, drop me a line. And if you want, you can email me directly at the letter J, Levine, L-E-V-I-N-E, at porterite.com. Have a great day. Thanks, Jay. Porter Wright Morrison Arthur LLP offers this content for informational purposes only as a service for our clients and friends. This content is not intended as legal advice for any purpose and you should not consider it as such. All rights reserved. <laughs>